The scripture um, for this morning is from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we're two weeks away from election day, in case you didn't know that or you haven't checked your mail or watched a video on YouTube or something on television for even just a couple of minutes. Uh, My son came to me asking me about uh, a couple of politicians a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, I don't like that guy. And I'm like, what do you mean he's 10 years old? I'm like, what do you mean you don't like that guy? He's like, I don't know. But every time I'm on YouTube, they're saying like, he's a really bad guy. And I'm like, all right. Well, it's, it's getting to you as well. Good thing you're not voting. Um, but I think it's a grace that we find ourselves in this passage at this time. Um, but, so I, a real grace that God is talking about here in Romans 13 about uh, our responsibility as citizens in, uh, in our society, in any society that Christians live in. But uh, first, before we really dive into it, I want to give a disclaimer. Uh, because um, while it's helpful to study this passage near an election, it can also be a challenge. And, and, and here's why it can be a challenge, because uh, you're going to be tempted, every person in this room are going to be tempted to hear everything in this passage in light of the election cycle or our current political situation. Uh, there, there are a number of you in this room that are strongly on a p- certain political side. And your tendency is going to be to hear uh, and to think about everything that we're going to read about and think about this morning in the light of, of that. Uh, to filter it through your understanding of politics and your stance on particular issues. And you're going you're gonna to be tempted to let it underscore your tendencies and your stances and your beliefs and your candidates. Uh, there are some of you here in this room that uh, you're kind of, you're not really on a strong po- political stance on one side or the other, but you're kind of stymied by the decisions that we have, by the choices that we have right now. And, and your tendency could be to look at this passage and just say, hey, God, just tell me here in Romans 13 who to vote for. 
Tell me what political party I need to align with. Just make it really clear. But here's what I just want to say before we go anything, before we go any further. It should be obvious, but just for all of us to get in our heads, to be thinking about as we're proceeding, is this passage is not about any particular candidate that is on the ballot in the next two weeks. This passage is not about any particular political party that is that we find ourselves choosing between. And here's the disclaimer, don't make it about any of those things. There are a number of things here and elsewhere in scripture, and we can have discussions. We talked about maybe putting on a podcast, or there's some resources I'd be glad to point you to and on how we can think about our role uh, as Christians in choosing our leaders and aligning on certain issues. But, and I have double checked, there is nothing in the Bible about Democrats or Republicans. So this is not a sermon about Democrats or Republicans or any particular candidate for any particular office. Also, another disclaimer I want to give, because this is a a big passage, is this passage has been one that has been misused, uh, often by those who, are, who have a political agenda to push. It's often been misused particularly by authoritarians and Christians who try to align themselves with authoritarians. And that is not what this passage is about. I just wanna get those disclaimers out there before we go any further. What this sermon will do and should do prayerfully is it should spark a lot of conversations and a lot of prayer and a lot of deliberations and a lot of thinking. Uh, I will not be able to answer all your questions in this sermon. I won't even be able to touch on all the questions in this sermon. But what it should do, hopefully will do, is begin to lay a, a foundation on how we can think about civil engagement as Christians and how then, how then we individually and in our community groups and as families can gather and talk about how the Bible and how the Lord Jesus instructs us and guides us to think about these things as believers. It's a challenging and a complicated subject with a lot of implications. It's a challenging and complicated subject with a lot of emotions. But it's worth engaging and it's worth talking about openly with each other. Hopefully, if this is a success as a church, it sparks conversations in our community groups and grabbing coffee with each other and you guys come up to me after the service and other times saying, hey, what about this, what about this? That is a success because what we're really talking about is a Christian ethic of civic responsibility. A Christian ethic, so how we think about as Christians living out our civic responsibility. All right, let's look at the passage. Romans 13, I'm gonna read it once again because I want it to be ringing in our ears as we kind of unpack it. Romans 13, one through seven let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is God's word. First of all, Paul tells us that citizens have a God-given responsibility to government. That's the first thing that Paul tells us in this passage, that citizens have a God-given responsibility to government. How does he say this? He begins off in in verse one, he says, to be subject or to be in submission to the governing authorities. Now, this is written to Christians, but it applies to everyone. First of all, he says that there are authorities in our lives. Most of us know this, even though we may kick against those authorities that are in our lives. That might be for some of us parents. It is for all of us government. These are kind of authorities that scripture talks about. In Ephesians 6, it talks about parents. It talks about government here in this passage. Uh, Peter and other places talk about church leaders as being authorities over us. All of us have bosses, or most of us have some sort of a boss in a workplace environment that are in authority over us. And Scripture acknowledges all of those as having authority in our lives. And the second thing he says is not just that there are people or entities that have authority over us in our lives. But he says, secondly, something that is pretty incredible. He says that though, that they are appointed by God, that, that somehow, and we don't know exactly how this works, but all of us who have authorities over us in our lives, that somehow they are in a mysterious way appointed to have authority over us by God himself. And the other thing, another thing that he says in this passage is that not only that all people should be in subjection to those authorities, but he says that Christians should still be in subjection under those authorities. And he's writing that to the, the believers in Rome, in, in Rome, and we don't know exactly why he's saying it, but it very well could be that you had these believers who are coming to faith in Christ. And they are part of coming to faith in Christ is acknowledging and bowing down your knee and accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. That means that you are accepting and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is your king. He is the supreme authority in your life. That nobody has any greater authority, including yourself, over you that is greater than Jesus Christ. And if he is king, then some of these Christians may be thinking, well, if Christ is king, then I have no other king above me. If Christ is my authority and Christ is my Lord, then I have no other Lord over me. And therefore, I don't have to show anybody else uh, deference. I don't have to give anybody else obedience. I don't have to acknowledge anybody else as having authority over my life because Jesus Christ alone is king. And here's what Paul is saying. He says that any authority that is over your life is an authority that is appointed by God. And you show submission to God, your Lord as a Christian, by submitting to the authorities that are over you in your life. In other words, you aren't submitting to your boss as, look, 
Some of you guys have really stupid bosses. They're not very intelligent, right? And you would think because of your stupidity, you don't deserve my submission or my obedience. But you don't owe your boss submission because they are smart or not. You owe them submission because you are a believer and Jesus Christ is your Lord. And you submit to your Lord through your boss. Children, you don't submit to your parents because they are super great parents. You submit to your parents because your heavenly father is super great and you submit to him, to him through them. We as believers don't submit to the civil authorities over us because they are really great at being leaders, because they deserve it because of their action or their conduct. We submit to them because we submit to Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we submit to him through them. So when you speed or you evade your taxes or you steal from your boss, you're doing so against the authority of God. You're not speeding or evading your taxes or stealing from your boss because they don't see you or they don't deserve it. Or if your boss had just given you that raise, then they wouldn't be in this situation right now. You, whenever you do those things, you do so against the authority of God. Romans 13, two through four that we just read. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, hear this, resist what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. If you don't wanna have fear of the one who is in authority, Paul tells us, then do what is good and you'll receive his approval because he is God's servant. That word there, that servant is the same word that, we, that is used for deacons in the church. We're not saying that he's a church official, but what we are saying that is that somehow, in some mysterious way, the leaders, including the civil leaders that are placed over you, are servants appointed by God for a purpose. It, whenever he says that here, he says that whenever we go against them, that we will incur judgment. Do you see that in verse two? The one who resists the authorities, that means breaks the law or goes against the will of the authorities will incur judgment. And there seems to be here reference a double judgment. First of all, he says that the civil authorities over us bear what he calls the sword. And that means that the civil government over us has the authority appointed by God to deal with us according to the law. Whenever you break certain laws, certain things happen. And it says that God has appointed the government to be able to wield that sword. So whenever you break the law, hey, look, if you're caught going 15 miles over the hour and you ran a stoplight and you did whatever else, went jaywalk, I don't know, like, I don't know how you did that in the car, but you broke all these laws. Like you can, you can cry out to God for mercy and you can ask the, the officer and the judge for mercy. You absolutely can do that. But you should do so acknowledging that you have broken the law that God has appointed a servant who then appointed that law. 
You can think it's stupid. Look, there's a, a road leading to my house that's 35 miles an hour and it is a stupid place to have a 35 mile per hour speed limit. It makes absolutely no sense. But if I break that law, I incur judgment upon myself from the civil authorities that are placed over me. And I can ask them for mercy and I can ask God for mercy, but I have, have to acknowledge that I'm gone against the authority that God has placed in my life. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. The second judgment that seems to be referenced here is not just the judgment that comes from the civil authorities, but the judgment of God himself. It seems to be saying in this passage that when we disobey and go against the authority that has been placed over us by the civil, in the civil government, that God holds us accountable for those things. So what does it mean to be in submission to governing authorities? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. What he is saying here is that our greatest submission is to God and all other submissions are focused back to him through the people that we are submitting to. In other words, I already said this, but we submit to God by submitting to the authorities that are over us. Because, and here's why, because ultimately all authority comes from God. All authority, as we as believers, we believe this, that all authority comes from God. Now you're already thinking about some caveats and we're gonna get those to it in, in a second. But first of all, we gotta think about how the world thinks differently about authority. The worldly way to think about authority is generally in three distinct ways. One is acquiescence. That, that means that people who blindly fall in line with those who are in power because they desire access to that power. So in other words, those who are in power over me can say whatever they wanna say and they do whatever they wanna do and I will go along with them simply because, no matter what they say or what they do, but simply because I want access to the power that they have. I want their protection or I want their covering or I want their goodwill. I want access to their power so that I acquiesce to them no matter what they say or no matter what they do or how they say it or how they do it, I acquiesce and I go along. The second way the, the world thinks about authority is, we, is in rebellion. And that is, open hostility to those who are in authority over us simply because they have authority or because I don't agree with the way they wield the authority. And therefore I rebel against the authority that is over me. I can acquiesce to it or I can rebel against it. Or the third way is just anarchy. That's where I fight against any type of authority over my life at all. I believe that nobody should be able to tell me what to do or how to do it. And really, you see why this is a worldly way, all three ways is because all three of those things have to do with our relationship to God. If, if I don't believe that there is a God or I don't believe that I have goodwill towards that God, then I'm gonna try to get in good graces with whatever power is over me by acquiescing to them. 
or I'm gonna try to exert my power and rebel against that authority over me, or I'm just gonna say there shouldn't be anybody at all that tells me what I can do or what I should do. My parents, my bosses, the civil authorities, church leaders, nobody should be able to tell me anything. I should be able to decide what I wanna do, when I wanna do it, how I want to do it. But what Paul is telling us here is that the overarching posture of the Christian is different from the people around us. The overarching posture of the Christian is different because the deepest motivation of the Christian is the same as the motivation of Christ. That's why we respond differently. Jesus thought and talked and lived and felt about things differently than anybody else who ever lived on the face of the earth. That's because his thoughts and emotions and actions were from a mind of a, an unbroken union with God. Jesus' deepest motivation was love and humility. The deepest motivations of Jesus were love for God and for other people and a humility before God and before other people. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing and I only say what I see the Father saying or what I hear the Father saying. And as your mind as a Christian is renewed, you will be increasingly motivated by love and humility in all that you do. That's why Christians think and sh or should think and act and behave differently than the people around us, not just because it's written out in scripture, but because what is written out in scripture corresponds to a heart that is motivated by love and humility, a love for God and his love for the people around us and a humility before God and therefore a humility with the people who are around us. So therefore, Christians have a renewed way of thinking about authority and government. Christians should be known for a different way of thinking about authority than the culture around us. What we're talking about is that Christians owe government a principled submission. That means a submission that's given by God and back to God. God appoints authorities over us and we submit ourselves to those authorities as we submit ourselves to God. And then that submission is driven by a love and a humility, not simply acquiescing with whatever is said up to the people above us, not rebelling against them or looking for anarchy, but simply obeying King Jesus by submitting to the people who have authority over us. And there's more things to get to with that and we will in just a minute. Secondly, Paul tells us that government has a God-given responsibility to its citizens. So not only do citizens have a God-given responsibility to government, but government has a God-given responsibility back to its citizens. It says that God appoints the authorities. Of course, that's a mystery. There are good, godly leaders, right? So if God appoints the leaders, that should ask, make us ask the question, all right, well, what about that guy? Or what about that lady, right? Because not everybody who has held or holds leadership in civil places or the church or other places of authority, not everybody who has held or holds those positions are good, godly people, are they? 
So that should make us ask the question, how does that work? How can somebody be in a position that we believe that Paul says here that authority over us are appointed by God, how can somebody hold a position or hold an office who some of them are good and godly and others are not good and godly? How can that happen? And the answer is, we don't really know. So there's your answer. We don't really know why or how God does those things. Here's what we do know. God tells us in Proverbs and other places that a godly leader, and let's define what a godly leader is. It's not just somebody who believes or professes the right things, but it's someone who lives out the right things. A godly leader is not someone, because there are plenty of, just for example, church leaders who held great doctrine, but in their souls were not godly leaders. They believed and said all the right things, but they were not humble and loving at the core of who they were. They weren't growing in humility and love. That is the definition of a godly leader, is a leader who is humble and loving. A good godly leader who is humble and loving, scripture tells us is a blessing to their land. That when a ruler rules over a land who is humble and loving, that it blesses the land, it blesses the people underneath them. We know that that is true. We also know from Proverbs and elsewhere that an ungodly leader, and let's define what an ungodly leader is, someone who is proud and self-seeking, someone who is immoral. When an ungodly leader, someone who is proud and self-seeking, someone who is immoral, When they lead a land, it brings trouble for the land. A godly leader brings brings blessing and an ungodly leader brings trouble to their lands. So here's what we know. We don't know why leaders who are godly and ungodly are in particular places of leadership. We don't know why they have authority. We know that God blesses a land or judges a land by and through their leader though. Did you get that? The leadership of an ungodly man or woman over a people itself is, can be judgment on a land and a cause for judgment. God appoints the authorities. We don't know exactly why or how, but we know that that is somehow true. Secondly, he tells us that the job of civil leaders is to keep order. He says they do so by punishing those who are wrong and rewarding those who are good. Did you hear that in the the passage? The sword is for those who do wrong and and the godly leaders reward those who then do good. But now the question that should cause us to ask is, what about when that isn't true? What about when a government itself is evil and unjust? What about when, a, when there are laws that are evil or unjust? And what about when there are leaders or individual leaders who are corrupt or evil or unjust? That brings us to that there's a difference between submission and docile obedience. Docile obedience, just going with whatever the leaders over us say without any care for anything else is not what God has called us to here. God has called us to principled submission. 
Uh, There's a reason that Paul uses the word subject or to be submitted to here. Because you can be in submission to someone without obeying everything that they say. See, submission is a heart posture. Obedience is an action. You can obey somebody without in your soul being subject to them. Because you're simply trying to keep the peace or you don't want to get in trouble. But what Paul is talking about here is a submission that, that is motivated out of love and a humility. When a law or a leader, though, or a government is corrupt, it doesn't suspend our responsibility to submit out of humility and out of love. We are still called to submit with a posture of submission in humility and love, but it also doesn't suspend our call to obey our Lord. In other words, when a leader or a law crosses what God has specifically told us to do as believers, we can disobey that leader or that law, but yet do so out of humility and love with a heart of submission, not simply to that leader, but to God who is above that leader. We can submit without obeying. For example, uh, Acts chapter five and verse 27 through 29, uh, the apostles were preaching the name of Jesus and they had been told specifically by the leaders who were above them, do not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. We're gonna let you go, but preach no longer in the name of Jesus. And they still went out and preached in the name of Jesus. And the authorities called them back in, and here's what they said, verse 27. And when they, had brought, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. In Acts 23, uh, Paul was standing before a council as well. And uh, verse one, it tells us, intently looking at the council, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. That was unjust. Then Paul said to him, God is gonna strike you, you whitewashed wall. In, in ancient times, that was a real, that was a real cut down. It doesn't quite translate now, but. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know brothers that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. It doesn't mean we disobey. It doesn't mean that we obey the unjust laws or the unjust demands of the leaders above us, but we do so in a heart of submission that's motivated by love and humility. We disobey, but we only disobey as Jesus would disobey. As Jesus did disobey, we only do so in humility and love. Citizens have a responsibility to government and government has a responsibility back to citizens. But then something that we need to look at this passage is that Christians have a higher responsibility 
as citizens of heaven. Christians have a higher responsibility as citizens of heaven. This passage is telling us that our engagement in civil issues is bigger than any single issue or any single election. Our engagement in civil issues is bigger than any single issue or any single election. That's why Paul can say that all authority has been given by God and that therefore we should be subject to it or in submission to those authorities. No matter how big the issue is or how big the election may seem to be, we are dealing with issues that are far bigger than any of those things. Here's why. Because we as Christians and the way that we interact with other citizens and the authorities above us has to do with how we observe the lordship of God himself. The way I interact with other citizens and leaders who are placed above me directly has to do with how I observe God as my Lord or am I my own Lord or something else my Lord. If there's a single issue or election that would cause me to treat people in a way that Jesus would not treat them, that is not motivated out of humility and love, then I have gotten a wire crossed somewhere and I've missed something very important. Because the Lordship of Christ is greater than any single issue or any single election. There have been any number of lands and countries that have had unjust laws and we should mourn over those. There have been any number of lands that have had unjust, ungodly rulers and we should mourn over that. But none of those things dethroned Jesus Christ as Lord and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And my devotion lies with him, not to any issue or political party or political leader. No, how, no matter how big or important those things may seem to be at the time. Because my, the Lordship of Jesus is greater than anything else. We're dealing with bigger things than a single issue or a single election because people's eternal fates are at stake around us. So what if you win an election for your side if the people around you see you responding in a way that does not reflect the nature and character of Christ Jesus? You've lost already. It is possible for you to win an election and yet lose because you lose your witness as a person who is in humble submission, motivated by love as a subject of Jesus Christ. What people should most see in you as a believer, in us as Christians, is not our political affiliation, is not the ballot that we cast, but should be the way that we respond to those even when we deeply disagree with them. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to have political opinions. There's any number of things that Christians can have valid debates about. But when we lose our witness by responding to people and the leaders above us in a way that is not fitting those who follow Christ and call on his name, that is not motivated by humility and love, then we have lost. That should be the thing that most marks us. 
It is important because there are things that are greater than a single issue or election. We're talking about the redemption of creation. The lordship of Christ, the eternal fate of those around us, and the redemption of creation. Look, we should try to overturn unjust laws. We should care about justice. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God, but all of those together? Not just do justice and not just love mercy, nor simply walk humbly before God, but all of those together. But we know that no leader, no party, no country will usher in the kingdom of Christ. Only the rule and reign of Christ himself will bring that to bear. We work today, we pray today, we mourn today. We cry out for God, for peace in our land today. And while we do so, we look for the return of King Jesus who's coming, who will make all things right and will dry every tear from every eye. That takes a renewed mind to comprehend because the temptation is to look at the here and now. If this election goes wrong, then the fate of the world hangs in the balance. That is not true for the believer. That's not true for the world. Our foundation is not built upon the election or a certain law or issue. Our fate is rests firmly in the hand of the man who sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty in heaven right now and is returning again to rule and to reign. Our savior is not just our savior, he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. He is risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. We are members of his kingdom, his kingdom. We are citizens of heaven and nothing can separate us from, the lo- from his love for us in Christ Jesus. So because of that, for the Christian, the in does not justify the means. We should not fight the battle or the fight the way the world fights. We should absolutely refuse to divide as Christians. We should absolutely not, look, we don't all have to believe the same thing politically, but we should not let political issues divide us as Christians. That is ridiculous and ungodly and quite crazy if you think about it. Why would we let a temporal, earthly issue separate us who are bound together by a heavenly Lord and Savior? This has become all too common among us. And when that is true, it's because we are not thinking and feeling with renewed minds. We let politicians and media personalities and others disciple us in the way that we think about politics and this world. We should let, we should not be participants of the mean polarized climate that surrounds us. Christians, hear that. We should not be participants in the mean polarized climate that is around us. Doesn't mean that we can't be participants in political issues, but the mean polarized aspect of it, we should not be. Nor should we watch and observe it like entertainment, like it's some sort of reality television. We should be driven to prayer and mourning for our culture and for our country 
and for our world. We as Christians should be peacemakers. We should be known for seeking the best with both those whom we agree with and those with whom we disagree. Here's the bottom line. Is that as Christians, we don't win the way the world wins. Christians win by following our Lord, by submitting to God, by submitting to authorities that are over us with a strong submission, a principled submission, by interacting with others out of love and humility and acting like citizens of another kingdom because that's exactly what we are. Before we are citizens of any land, we are citizens of heaven. And that should be what marks us. In two weeks, there'll be an election. And a number of people in this room will be crestfallen. And others in this room will be elated. But you know how we should respond? We should respond as members of Jesus' kingdom with respect, with love. We should, as is told us in the previous chapter, we should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we should encourage each other to look past the strengths and weaknesses of our human leaders and not confuse any country or government as perfect until Jesus establishes his kingdom, his rule, and his reign. I pray the Lord would help us to renew our minds in that way. Let's pray.